curating an experience. I mean, the animal doesn't care, right? I mean, the animal doesn't care if you kill it with a spear or you kill it with a long-range rifle. I mean, that's... I mean, let's not... Let's not cartoon the reality of taking an animal's life. It doesn't matter for the animal. In the hunting and fishing world, there are just so many variables that it's hard to establish a baseline and then measure yourself against it. We do it within sort of inches of animal. Some of that's luck, some of that's money, some of that's opportunity, um, and some of that's effort and preparation. But it's there's so many factors that the, the reality is you never can truly take full ownership of that opportunity in comparison with other sort of sports. And that is the, the great divide, like the uncertainty associated with that. You can do everything right and nature doesn't cooperate. You can do everything wrong, and nature just offers it up to you. It's not fair. to the RNA Outdoors podcast fueled by Ripcord Arrowrest and First Light Hunting Apparel. At RNA, we are public land DIY conservationists that love to share our passion for the outdoors. So join us and our team as we interview professionals in the industry to share insight knowledge that helps make hunters and anglers more successful. Peter Pan played in his pond. All right, just working on our levels here. The tick of the talk, the tip of the tip, the tick of the talk. Okay, I think we're we're good. You start talking about tips, and we got a problem. Are we uh, rolling? Oh, we're we're hot. We're as hot as you want to be. I apologize, Mom, for the first part of that i didn't know i was being recorded most don't and i usually don't play any of that but that's nice the most interesting man in the world fierce arms mr fury himself <laughs> Are, do, do you do you label yourself as a trad bow archery hunter or a rifle hunter that that's the opening question for our guest tonight because you because you have identified yourself as a trad archer hunter and a bow hunter and you killed a nice bull this year but you're also kind of one of those geeks that loves to tweak your 6.5 and get the right grains and the right bullet and and you're a nerd like that but you're also an intellect so that that makes sense well i mean when you're talking about archery versus rifle you're talking about method to take and for me that's just a component of it it's okay. not in a self-identity it's not a 
clan or a tribe. I mean, it's just a method to take. And um, <clears throat> I think there's... I think there's a difference between evaluating yourself in terms of your own journey for taking an animal and projecting those expectations on someone else. How many years of college have you been through? Cause this is way, way too educated for my podcast. <laughs> You're supposed to say, I want, I'm a killer. Right. Right. <laughs> give me right. a bow. I'm supposed give me to a self, rifle. I'm, I'm a killer. I'm on team red. <laughs> I am red. Um, Therefore, Team Blue sucks. Cody, why did you breed <laughs> such an animal? What? I'm not the spawn of Cody. What, what, That's true. This, this is not about Cody. Mutual it's about friend. traditional versus, you, you need to draw the line between traditional versus archery or not traditional really. versus compound. You've, you've crossed all bounds in your life. Like I'm not, I've never, I've never hunted with a trad bow. Like I wouldn't know. Like a shell off of the rifle, and I, 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 I like to think of myself as kind of a bow hunter, and yeah. that's, you know, and so, but that doesn't mean that I would pick up a rifle and shoot something. But so, I think for me, the greatest value is in having a sense of ownership and intent and purpose associated with the take of an animal. Okay, and you can achieve that with the most long range rifle that you spend hours dialing in you work on your loads you 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 dope the wind mm -hmm. you uh, shoot you may, you might you know cast your own stock shoot, you may you, hold six inches and four to the left right I mean, right right i mean there's that i mean you're curating an experience i mean the animal doesn't care right? yeah i mean the animal doesn't care if you kill it with a spear or you kill it with a long-range rifle i mean that's i mean let's not it's not cartoon the reality of taking an animal's life. It doesn't matter for the animal. So now we're selfishly curating our own sort of, you know, ex <laughs> fantasy associated with taking this animal. And that is a personal experience. Yeah. <clears throat> I think within the, the hunting world, there is a sort of, a, you know, it's, I think hunting and fishing in particular it's not like you're running, you know, an, a, a, a mile race or a 5,000 meter race where there's a, a clear standard, there's a, a established distance and you can, uh, you know, you can say, well, there was a headwind that day or, you know, X, Y, Z. But the reality is there's, there's a baseline which you measure your, yourself against mm -hmm. in the hunting and fishing world. There are just so many variables that it's hard to establish a baseline and then measure yourself against it. We do it within sort of inches of animal. Some of that's luck. Some of that's money. Some of that's opportunity. Um, and some of that's effort and preparation. But it's there's so many factors that the, the reality is you never can truly take full ownership of that opportunity in comparison with other sort of sports. And that's hard, I think, for anyone's ego who's associated with their identity be associated with a particular passion sport, whether it be fishing or hunting. It's, you know, I, I talk to friends who golf and I say, you know, um, archery hunting in particular for elk, I say it's just like golf. You know, I spend all year long working on my stroke, getting to anticipate distances, getting to know my, my equipment, 
it, the only difference is that when it, it'd be just like golf, if, if you showed up and sometimes the ball never showed up for weeks and sometimes years. And that is the, the great divide, like the uncertainty associated with that. You can do everything right and nature doesn't cooperate and you can do everything wrong and nature just offers it up to you. And it's not fair. And I think that's probably a better analog for life, but it makes a hard comparison within sort of society, especially when you're communicating out to folks outside of the hunting and fishing world. Joe Furio, welcome to the podcast. What a great <laughs> intro. <laughs> I will say it's it's nice to see your bright, beautiful face. Straight out of Portland. Good friend. And, um, yeah, we're here in Reno, of all places, which, you know, there's worse places to be, I guess. We could be in... in uh, Las Vegas? True. Are you going to you're gonna start that? You're going to start that? Lost battle. wages? No. Las, Las Vegas versus Reno? No, I, I don't I don't actually mind Reno the, as much. Battle to the bottom. The thing with Reno is, is it's, you know, 10 degrees right now, and it's kind of hard for a bum to live on the street in 10 degrees. But um, Reno, to me, is, is to me kind of more of a mecca of outdoors than Vegas, right? You've got a Cabela's. You've got a Sportsman's Warehouse. You've got a Shields. You've got... You've got Nice sized mule deer that live within close proximity to Reno, so I can I can attenuate to Reno more than I can Vegas. But I mean, I mean, last time we met was in Boise, Idaho. So that's I mean, true. If we would slum down to those standards. I mean, of course he won't put a headset on, but yeah, no, good to see you, man. Good to see you too. So that was just a, a, a that was a, a warm intro. So maybe tell everyone out there who you are, what you do, what you know, what you stand for, who, who is Joe? How much time do I have? Well, the show doesn't start till 10 tomorrow morning. So, <laughs> okay. So, uh, Joe Furia from, uh, Seattle, Washington, um, live in Portland, Oregon. I'm the executive director of the world forestry center. We're focused on, uh, creating and inspiring champions of sustainable forestry and that means a vision where we shape society to value and take action in support of the economic, ecological, and social benefits of forestry. So in a world of climate change, population growth, catastrophic wildfire, technology shifts, the world of, of yesterday is very different. And the world of forestry in particular plays an essential role into the health and safety of society and nature. I mean, the two, the two are inextricably tied. I mean, I think in within the hunting and fishing world, that's probably more understood than other places, but, sure. um, it's a 54 year old organization took over about a year and a half ago and do my best to build out the next 50 years of the organization. So being in Oregon in a state where land is pretty hot topic, right? I mean, from a, from a, state owning federal land public land standpoint right and you've kind of got all those those three pillars I, gu I guess where do you guys fit in that niche where you know i mean all you hear about is well warehouser owns this logging companies own this federal land owns this where, where do you guys fit in that mix so whether or not you're talking about forestry on private land or on public land, 
the reality is, is that your ability to manage that resource is highly dependent on general societal support for your actions. So in the case of private land, it's around social license to conduct forestry within the parameters of how we've set the the uh, economy. On public land, it, it's really around spending public dollars to manage a resource. Um, so, you know, sustainable forestry, those three pillars of sustainability, ecological, economic, and social, um, it's not just lip service. All three of those are important, and I think the the history is that a healthy forest involves all three of those things. I don't think that's how generally we've managed our forests. We've kind of subdivided. We've our, mismanaged our forests in in different ways. Sort of, you know, either our, our entire focus around ecological and its sort of preservation, and then we then all of a sudden we <laughs> we suppress wildfire at the same time mm-hmm. because we've built houses into the wild urban interface or it's entirely economic and we've you know slicked off all the all the timber we haven't thought about sort of the other benefits provided to by that resource by having sort of a diverse age class you know it's messy the the history of humanity and nature is it's messy and it's complicated i think the the purists in us want to oversimplify I think that's human nature. We create tribes, we create doctrines, and we want to oversimplify it. But the reality of nature, and anyone who hunts and fishes knows this to some extent, is it's complicated. And I think that... Kind of like relationships, right? It's complicated. Are we going to talk about your dating life It's now? a status. That's, that's way can, more complicated. That's I think true. That maybe we should dive into that deep well. I mean, I was about to go into the sort of general philosophical... Keep going. It, into your relationship? Sorry. No, no, sorry. 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 I, I, no. <laughs> sorry I hijacked that. Okay. Keep right. going. We'll, 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 we'll parachute in and parachute out on that one. <laughs> uh, but I think um, we have to, I think in many ways, the future of humanity and the future of nature relies on us being honest about the complexity of the relationship and the trade-offs on that. Um and I think that m- most of humanity and most of society, especially within Western society, has fallen into a less complex understanding of our relationship to the natural world. And that includes forests. Um, you know, I know folks in the forestry world who, of course, rely on forests for their, for their well-being, but who care deeply about the health of that resource and, and the renewability sorry, the sustainability of that resource. Um, more so than some in the urban environment who lack a, much of a nuanced understanding. It's kind of, you know, either strict preservation or there's, there's, there's nothing else. Um, I think there's, you know, where we are in a world, especially in a world of climate change and catastrophic wildfire, is that we've got to realize that this is a resource that has all types of values. We have to, we have to um, invest in those values um, and we have to manage them accordingly. And that's sort of where we're, where we're headed. And it's, it doesn't make great bumper stickers. It seems like to me, there's like two extremes. There's people that love trees and people that hate trees. And it doesn't seem like there's people on the fence in the middle. And the ones that love them, 
you could argue are part of the reason I, I look at the state that California's in right now. We haven't timbered and logged in years. We've got tons of deadfall and we've got huge wildfire issues, right? And you've got a resource that could create the state economic value, which you talked about, one of the three pillars ecologically could, um, but they don't, and they don't do any proactive logging and timbering in the state, and it's created it's created the situation that we're in now. So I guess if there's people on the fence, how do you get them one way or the other in the, in the antis? What do you, how do you guys influence or do you at all even influence in that space? Well, you, you, can't, you can't just just say it's all about the antis and you can't say it's all about the industrials. I mean, the history is complicated, right? I mean, the, the history of forestry in North America is, starts out with an extraction approach cut and move, cut and move. It starts in the East Coast, it moves West. Eventually you run out of real estate and all of a sudden it's like, okay, maybe we should plant and start to think about this as a renewable resource. So, and and and, and frankly, that realization has been around for over 120 years, or actually probably closer to 150 years. So I think that the history of forestry in recent times is a mindset of, of a renewable resource that you invest in and that gives back to you. The complexity is in everyday choices of society and connecting how the health and safety and happiness of everyday individuals that are in the city is connected to the health of forests. It's very tangible in the case of wildfire, right? Wildfire is or at least catastrophic wildfire in the West is a product of suppressing wildfire for a hundred some years. I would say, yeah, it's some level of mismanagement too. Well, so the science is traditionally in the West, you would have wildfire. It would occur through the landscape. You would have a diversity of age classes. Your older trees would survive that wildfire. It occur at a lower level lower flame heights and that would clean out a lot of the underbrush and the older trees would survive. Mm. And in the, in, in, as we've, you know, as humanity's moved in and we have houses and, you know, fire sucks. If you have a house, we've suppressed wildfire. So there's this, you know, there's a general theory around sort of restoration and natural resource management. And you could sort of split these into two camps. One is a sort of strict, strict preservationist sort of pre-colonial approach, which exists in certain places in your home state, which you love and sort of defines you, which is California, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of, let's try to return to a pre-colonial era. That's our marker. Let it be just, let it be what it is. From a scientific ecological perspective, that has not been the baseline. In fact, in recent history, the acknowledgement has been that this, there is no sort of strict baseline. The reality is nature evolves and changes. It's mm-hmm. really about the rate of change. Sure. And from a restoration perspective, there's a there are folks, and I would self-identify as this, that acknowledge that the metafactor on Earth is humanity, and the reality is population growth is happening. And the question is, if you're managing nature, how do you manage with that reality? So it's some, some of us refer to it as an adaptive re- restoration. 
So that's sort of the world I live in. I, I live in a world in which most of humanity doesn't think about trees when they wake up in the morning and they go to bed at night. And they're focused on health and safety and um, their children and education, those other things. You yeah. look in any general budget, that's how we, we prioritize our, our spending. And so it's you have to manage a natural resource acknowledging that reality. If, if you manage a natural resource and basically say, you know what, I, I'm going to care about this resource. And really what I'm going to try to do is convince the rest of humanity that if they can just think like me and value these trees over health and safety and education and all these other pieces, they just, they just need to care more about trees. It's, it's really, it's really hard for me to get behind that. I, I live in a sort of adaptive restoration world in which we look at humanity, look at sort of the health and safety and happiness of humanity and figure out how can we do the best we can given those realities, given the timelines we have. I mean, climate change is a classic example. I mean, that's happening. That's real. And if you want to focus on your postage stamp preservation project and not acknowledge that reality, you are living in you're not living in reality. You're living in a fantasy. And so for me, it's, I, I aspire to a world that's better. I think that there's a balance and there's a more sustainable existence, but it doesn't exist in a world in which we don't acknowledge what humanity has invested in, in the past and work with it. It is a, it, you know, I think, I think there's a, I think there's a, we mess up on both ends of the spectrum, whether you're talking about their hardcore environmentalist world, or you're talking about your hardcore sort of economic, um, some would say sort of extractive world. I think in both those worlds, we fall into the classic, uh, paradigm of preaching to the choir. We sort of find our tribes. We find people who think like us. And we kind of stir ourselves up and you can, you can sort of talk about media and social media and how this sort of exacerbates us more, but we sort of focus on the folks that, that we know that, that support us and we just sort of preach and we just sort of demonize the other side. And by the way, in the case of natural resources, most of humanity doesn't fucking care. They don't care. They're focused on this other stuff. And so if you're, if you're caring about the big levers, you can focus on that little niche on the far side and sort of fighting the, your little, you know, provincial battle between the other side, or you can focus on the big levers, which is the rest of humanity who's not focused on that. And that's that's really what I what what I've sort of where I've staked my claim and where I'm focusing on the future is not sort of getting into this pitched battle between the extremes on either side, but focusing on the big levers in the center. And how we live a happier and healthier life through how we manage our forests. It almost seems like there's, so I'm listening to what you're saying and it's a lot of information, but there's almost like a, there's a dichotomy between what you talked about, both ends of the spectrum. You've got your, your extreme environmentalists and then probably more, I would say your realist. You said, I think you coined it a different term, but, but I guess where on that spectrum do you, do you feel like you're 
you're focusing, you're, you're putting your most effort into is, is it the people that get it and are, are marching or is it the people that you say kind of filled these tribes where, um, and to me, I, when I think of tribe people, I think of people that are probably not for the cause and they march, they're like lemmings. They follow the one. It, it's almost like a dictatorship type thing where they're enabled and they're provided whatever they want because they know they're going to get that if they follow this way. But do you, where do you, where do you see yourself falling in the spectrum where you talk it, to me, it's a bit of a niche what you're doing, but you've got a focus and you've got a, you've got a narrow path that you're looking at. What, I guess, what is it your, what group are you trying to, to try to target? I'm a pragmatist. A pragmatist, but I'm going to reframe sort of your reference there. You, you sort of set up the sort of extremist versus the realist. I would say the pragmatist, the realist is more in the middle, and the extremist actually exists on on both extremes. And in terms of their approach to sort of issues and their their goals, they actually have way more in common with each other. Now they you know if if you actually ask them to self-identify, they you know grab a pike and run towards each other. Um, they, they would say that they, they are in completely different camps and they're, they have completely different values, but the reality is in terms of how they solve a problem, they have way more in common than they do with the rest of humanity in the middle. There's, it's, you know, there's, there's someone who said there's, you know, uh, there's no, no room in the middle except for, you know, striped lines and dead armadillos, right? Like that, 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 that there's a history of politics and humanity that, that sort of fosters this extremism. What's rare is to find folks who sit in the middle and weather the storm of the complexity and the nuance of trying to find a manageable solution that moves the needle. It's not just about landing punches, but whether or not you, you solve the problem. And, I, and it's a mixed metaphor there, but it, there's, it, you know, there's, there's just uh, what I've, sort of gone through in my career is with folks on either side who, by the way, personally, I, I can, I can, I can self-identify with aspects of it. I guess for me, there's a sense of scale and a sense of time that drives me toward a more pragmatic, realist approach, as you characterized, focusing on how we can move the needle in a time frame that's meaningful at a scale that's meaningful for a healthier and happier tomorrow. And in regards to our forest, that is this sustainable forestry, these three pillars of sustainability, ecological, economic, and social benefits of forests. Now the history of the World Forestry Center started out unapologetically with folks involved in the, um, the economic aspects of forests. Um, but there's a lot of truth that comes from dealing with forests day to day and dealing with both the benefits and the hardships associated with those forests. It's very different when forests live in a, in, in a, um, more of a mental sort of imaginative scenario, sort of a, a, a world in which they're either perfect, you know, or you live in a sort of pre 19th century sort of like forest or evil, right? There's a, there's a reason why, and the Brothers Grimm, all the danger lives in the forest, right? So there's the idea of the forest being the 
sort of the harbinger of bad things to come. And there's sort of a modern idea that the forests are sort of where everything's perfect. Um, and anybody, especially people that spend time hunting and fishing, know that the forests provide both. And that's, um, th I think that's important. That's the reality. Um, but it often doesn't necessarily fit well on a bumper sticker. So kind of in your journey, are, are, are you focused locally in what you guys are doing? Is this more of a, uh, I guess, a far outreach? I mean, are, are, are you looking at what you're doing in your home state? Are you looking at things that happen in Washington? Are you looking at things that happen in West Virginia? Or is it, is it localized to where you kind of call home? So plat platform of the World Forestry Center over its 54 years includes folks that are involved in forest management, and we're based in Portland, Oregon, but people who are based in forest management in Oregon, in the West Coast, across the United States, and across the world. Um, I have always believed that any organization and entity should be able to tell the story of concentric sort of spheres of influence. So in other words, if I'm going to make an impact on an international scale, I should at least be able to demonstrate how you're doing that locally, how you're doing it locally. So we're based in Portland, Oregon. We're involved out there. We certainly have larger ties there. But, you know, for example, we put on Who Owned the Forest, which is the largest forest investment conference in the world. And close to 50% of the attendees come from outside of the Pacific Northwest, a lot of them from the South and Southeast. And in fact, in this last year, um, Georgia became the largest exporter of forest products, usurping my home state of Oregon. So, hmm. and anyone who invol who's involved in forest products will tell you that the, the price and the demand for their, for their wood product has a much, as much to do with dynamics that are occurring across the nation and, and, and across North America, and in many cases internationally in terms of wood coming in from Southeast Asia or Russia. Um, and so it, this doesn't live in a, in, in, a, in a vacuum. And I think from a conservation standpoint, um, although there might be localized impacts in terms of watersheds, the, the benefits of forests and the, and the impacts of forests actually cross those boundaries as well as but when you talk about things like climate change. So I think that uh, we often default to those things that we are, are closest to us, that we have most sort of tangible connection to. But in the case of forests, it is a concentric s sphere of, of influence. And for us, we're based in Portland, Oregon. We will always have a, a, a base in the Northwest when we think about forestry and where we can move the needle, it includes the nation and the world. I know, and part of our connection is through, you know, backcountry hunters and anglers who's trying to do a lot of things to, to keep public land public, right? To allow people to recreate, to, you can be a rock climber, you can be a fisherman, you can be a hunter, you can be a rat, whatever that is, is to allow people that ability to, to be able to recreate and do that. Do you guys, do you guys fall into any types of organizations where you're 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 siding with the public land owner and you're you're trying to keep land from being privatized or are you guys more looking bigger scale beyond kind of those headlights 
So if you look across the landscape and, you, and you're looking at ownership type, right, whether it's federal land or state land or county land or private land, I think that the, the regulatory framework for all those areas is different. I think the expectations around the values and the return on investment are different. Um, so our work is across all those landscapes. Um, and I think that in the history, I mean, you're sort of using BHA as a touchstone here. And I would say that in the history of the United States, public land and the role of public land, and its, re- its relationship to the public um, and the freedom associated with it and those values are, are a bedrock of, of being an American. It's primary. Well, in to- I... You can go back to the Constitution, though. There are fundamental private yeah. property rights that are also part of being American. So I think that, you know, when you look across the landscape, when you look at the sort of who owns the landscape, that sort of identifies the expectations and the tools for how you're going to manage forests within that area. But they're all connected. I mean, you know, I mean, if you're using a keystone species, the elk, the the salmon, from an ecological perspective, they don't really care who owns the land. Yeah, they'll um, cross a boundary, and it doesn't matter to them. But I think that you you have to acknowledge the the reality in terms of expectations, and their uh, and the reality in terms of regulatory framework that exists across those landscapes. So we deal across all those landscapes. We have we we have events. Um, in conferences and workshops that include folks on the state and federal land in terms of um, land managers. We have uh, environmental groups. We have private landowner managers. Um, it's, you, you, I mean, there's someone who said at one point, you can't be all things to all people or you're nothing to anybody. Um, I think that in this case, the, the history, I mean, the, the reality of forest management is depends on the designation of the land. And then um, you look at that and you try to work your best you can to, to create a, a sustainable framework. What do you see as like your biggest threat or what when you when you go to apathy. work every day? Apathy. Yeah, I, that's the, that's the greatest threat. Right. I mean, in the case of forests. Right. It's I mean, there's 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 people that I would describe as tree dorks that would consider trees sort of charismatic megafauna, but trees often fall in the sort of, you know, if you're doing your, your Bob Ross painting, right? The trees are kind of the background and the foreground, you have something that's more dramatic, uh, for a lot of folks, whether it's the, the, the lake or the, the elk or the flowers, trees are sort of the background. But they are a fundamental sort of keystone species that connects the land, the water, and the air together. And I think the, 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 the greatest concern in my mind is apathy towards the role that forests play in economic health, ecological health, and, and social health. I mean, you got folks in Japan that are doing, you know, forest bathing you go and spend time in a forest. I mean, it's a little metaphysical, but I, I think you have to acknowledge a reality that there's something about spending time in forest that yeah. has, that has a lot sort of, of different benefits, a lot of benefits that don't necessarily correlate to sort of strict ecological or strict economic. Um, and I think 
that when we deal with solutions for managing these landscapes, which are significant, when you fall into these traditional paradigms, you, it, it naturally transfers to sort of splitting up the dollars that are available. Yeah. And so you get a bunch of sort of, you know, small niche projects that don't sort of move the landscape in the direction you want to go. Um, the example of wildfire is a classic example where for throughout the West, we have an issue of catastrophic wildfire uh, in which we have suppressed wildfire in the interest of mitigating risk to growth that has occurred in the wild urban interface. We have um, a lack of harvesting of trees due to restrictions associated with ESA listed species like the spotted owl and others. Um, and, uh, and then the sort of trickle down effect that happened in the economy. And so you have sort of a, you know, this is, this is, you know, uh, coming from the U S forest service and one of their head, um, ecologists who basically described it as that epidemic of trees. And I would say it's an epidemic of trees of a sing single age class, which are fairly young. And when they catch fire, the flame heights are significant and you get a catastrophic wildfire that impacts the larger trees. That the solution of that is not a one solution fits all solution. Mm -hmm. It's, it's trying to get the landscape back to a functional state and that involves human influence, right? So I, I you know, you, you put the paradigm of sort of environmentalists on one side, real realist on the other side, I would say that the, the paradigm that we're, we're looking for here is really one of sort of preserve sort of strict preservation and then one of more intervention. And I clearly fall in the place of intervention. There may be places where it makes sense to preserve because they have the normal ecological you know, processes in place. We haven't messed them up too much. And relative to their economic value, it makes more sense to invest in the, the ecological value. So, so lock those places up. Great. But there's a lot of places that we've influenced one way or another. And we can't just sort of pretend that they'll be healthy if we just leave them alone. We have to engage in them. Um, and those of us who care about the natural resources, we have to acknowledge the fact that we're a minority. And so you may care about that particular forest grove because you, you've hunted there, you've spent time there. But there are larger impacts that occur in terms of air quality, um, in terms of, um, erosion, in terms of impact on private property, if there are houses in that area and for the larger part of humanity, those are going to drive, drive how dollars are spent. And so you can't live in a world in which you ignore that. You have to engage in that conversation. Um, my, my whole work in this whole area, I love to hunt, I love to fish, I love to spend time in the woods. I would love to spend the rest of my life away from humanity. My greatest fear is that while I'm spending that time away from humanity, there are decisions that are being made 
that impact the resources that I love and care about. And while I've spent time out in the middle of nowhere enjoying them, there are decisions, decisions being made back in the cities that are going to overrun whatever I've done wherever I am. And so my life is really a story of kind of, kind of coming out of the woods, coming out of those areas, spending time in the cities, investing in that, in that conversation and engagement and not running away from it. So that might not be for everyone, but that's what I've yeah. chosen. I mean, you, you've clearly dedicating kind of your livelihood, your life to, to this resource. Like what, what, what was the turning point? What was the aha moment? Like, what is it for you that said, that's it? Like, cause this is, again, you don't wake up at eight o'clock and go work a nine to five and come home every day. I mean, you, you do something that is very specialized, something that's very different that most people are, I mean, they can't relate to, right? What, was there an aha moment that said, this is why I want to do this? Really? What's the why behind it for you? There's a lot of ways to, to, to slice and dice that question. I think, you know, I mean, his, if you were just going to historically, my, my father was the first, well, he would organize the first Earth Day celebration in Philadelphia. So Earth Day, Senator Gaylord Nelson announced it should be an Earth Day. All these Earth Day celebrations were created organically across North, I mean, across the United States. And uh, my my father was in Philadelphia, and it was the largest Earth Day celebration. It was actually an Earth Week celebration. Um, and uh, that led to him being the first regional administrator of um, Region 3, which is the Mid-Atlantic States, the Chesapeake, um, under the, the Nixon administration. Um, and then there's a, a long history beyond that. But my point growing up was always a place in which... Um, how we managed our re natural resources was fundamentally connected to our everyday health and happiness. And not everyone grows up that way. So that's sort of the touchstone for me. And, and, and then I grew up loving spending time in the woods, largely around hunting and fishing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I spent time, I remember I, I was fishing, uh, for steelhead up in the, the coast of Washington with my father. And I think I was probably around 10 years old and we we're fishing for steelhead and we were fishing with someone who was a, um, an attorney for, I believe one of the tribes. Uh, actually, no, he, he wasn't an attorney. He was a, actually, that's actually the funnier part. He was a fisheries biologist for one of the tribes. And we were talking about salmon and steelhead. And I, I said, well, I want to, I care about salmon and steelhead. I get involved. And he said, well, don't become a scientist. All the decisions are made by the politicians and the attorneys. So I decided at that point that I was going to become a, a politician or an attorney. And I mean, I, it wasn't that linear, but that was sort of one of the, the watershed moments. And then I went on to initially work in business and tech in the Silicon Valley, um, work in a hybrid vehicle company, uh, go to law school, focus on natural resources, practice law, and then um, end up in the nonprofit world, first in the water world and now in the forest world. So that's the, it's not your typical story, but that's yeah. sort of the tale. Yeah. So I think about like clean air, clean water and, and, and kind of the, this, 
again, Department of Forestry that that that's a that's a billion dollar industry that I don't know that's especially in the state that I'm in is it has been exploited to the extent that it should be. But when you talk about like clean air and clean water, how they all connect to each other, um, that's a big deal, especially in 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 a world of climate change. You talk about climate change. You talk about um, greenhouse gases with carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, any carbon chain element in renewable resources such as forestry potentially have a fix to some of that stuff. And, and I'm not sure that that's always viewed as um, an opportunity when we're looking at other ways to try to regulate and manage that from kind of an emerging regulation standpoint. But I guess, I guess my point is with that, you know, there's a lot of things that in our lifetime have emerged into concerns, problems, issues where if they were probably worked for more from a, I would say you talk about linear, you know, kind of viewpoint, but, and I even hate to say common sense, but at what point do we go back to the basics on some of this stuff and say, this is what the constitution was based on. This is what our founding members based a lot of the stuff on yet we have strayed so far away from some of that stuff when really the answer a lot of times is, is very simple, right? I, you know, I mean, I don't want to simplify this too much, but there's a night of drinking with a friend in which you start with a very simple idea and you have some drinks and you wander very far away. And then later on the evening, you return to it and you sort of appreciate the complexity and the simplicity of what you started out with. I think the history of forest management in the case of, you know, use the case of California. Um, I, you know, I think there are, I don't think our future looks like the history of exploitation that occurred when it was a strictly extractive mindset towards our forests. Um, but I think there's been a lot of recent lessons um, that demonstrate that a hands-off approach is in itself not necessarily the best approach mm -hmm. and that the, the, the healthiest future is somewhere in between. Um, I think that that, I mean, that's why I think that in, especially in the case of wildfire, I think, you know, wildfire is the once in a generation opportunity to connect the general public to the importance of managed forests. And I say managed forests and because it's not a hands off relationship, it's, it's, it's an engaged relationship and you know, anyone who's worked in technology and robotics and et cetera knows that, you know, you'd like to think that computers are perfect, but the problem is, is that you're programming computers with humans in it. So there's going to be an imperfect there's aspect. There's still a human behavior behind it. So as we engage with nature and we acknowledge it's more complex, we're going to make mistakes, but we can't run away from it. We can't. I think that the reality is we have to engage in that relationship. We have to invest in it. And it's messy and it's complex, but the social, economic, and ecological aspects of forests are all significant and they're connected. Um, and that's, that's the key part of all our work. And I think that, I mean, the reason why I took this job was because I saw things that were occurring in society, especially here in North America, that provided an opportunity to change the paradigm that existed um, in recent years, which is one of this sort of trench warfare 
um, with two sides pitted against each other. I think that especially when you look at climate change and all these pieces, it really drives you to, to really sort of think about how we can engage and manage our forests. Um, and that, that, that has an economic component, but it also has an ecological. In the case of Oregon, it's a classic example. So in the case of Oregon, I chaired the mitigation committee for the Oregon uh, Governor's Wildfire Council. And out of our committee, that report included evaluating the most high-risk uh, acres in Oregon. This is based on the qualitative risk assessment, which was yet led by the U.S. Forest Service, involved 28 values. Um, that were impacted by forests and then used forest models to look at how those, uh, sorry, fire models to, and forest models look at sort of how fire and landscape would impact those values. And out of that, we basically concluded that if you could, uh, if you look at the most high risk acres, if you can manage 40% of those acres, you could actually change how that fire behaves and change the fire risk. So with all that caveat in place. You're talking about 5.5 million acres in Oregon alone, roughly at $4.1 billion. So that was what was necessary to sort of get the landscape to a place that it could be sort of, you know, managed in a sustainable way. So that's a significant investment. It, it is not a hands-off investment. It is a a all-in social general fund investment in the health of our forests. That's a microcosm for what I see the future of forestry being, which is a world in which we acknowledge and engage in the reality in which our everyday health and happiness is connected to our forests. I'll give you another example in terms of the paradigm associated with forests. Um, Alphabet, the parent company of Google, has a number of um, subsidiaries. One of those entities is uh, a, an organization focused on the future of housing, sort of housing humanity. And they are focused on, one of the big projects they're focused on is a, uh, a, a uh, project in Toronto, in the, in the waterfront of Toronto. And that involves improving the quality of the housing in that area, investing in that area, but most importantly involves disruptive technology that involves reducing the amount of time it takes to build these multi-use housing. Um, and from that, that led them to actually looking at mass timber. So mass timber involves not just taking big trees. We don't have a lot of big trees, right? So we got small trees. Taking small trees, laminating those together, in, in some cases, this is cross-laminated timber. It can also be plywood. And basically building big buildings with wood. Um, and in their case, um, to address fire risk, they developed te technology that actually came out of Japan that uses a combination of seaweed and eggshell. I'm not making this up, stuff up. It's real. <laughs> and spraying... Like a coating or something? Yeah, coating on the, on the mass timber. And... In that they are outperforming traditional sort of steel, concrete, and sort of traditional um, uh, structures. structures in terms of fire risk and fire resilience. But the most important thing is it creates a building that, well, 
from an investment standpoint is cheaper, faster, gets up quicker. But from an ecological standpoint, it involves sequestering carbon and, you know, a significant percentage of our greenhouse gas emissions that contribute to climate change come from the creation of concrete and steel. Sure. So there's... Well, there's, think of how it's got to get here. It's got to come on a barge, comes from China. I mean, depending on how that's powered, it's going to be some natural resource that's probably powering that. By the time it gets here, how's it transported to the job site? How's it set up? Well, a crane's got... So, yeah, there's there's... There's traceable amounts of of all of that in the process of from the time a piece of steel gets built to the time it actually gets implemented or or constructed into whatever that structure is. Yeah, you describe steel. I would say concrete. It's all generated here in North America, but it's significant in terms of its emissions um, from a greenhouse gas or climate change perspective. So I think that, and I think that's not. I mean, this isn't rocket science, especially for, for sort of the next generation coming on, you know, your generation, the millennials. Thanks. Um, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you definitely sort of squarely, you, you dress like it. You just uh, um, totally labeled me. Yeah. It's, it's, since you're so I, old, it's, it's written on your forehead. Is it? Um, yeah. Yeah. Your, your jeans are way too tight. Um, but, uh, <laughs> No, there's there's a recognition that folks aren't just interested in landing punches. It's not just about sort of what you put on your bumper sticker. There are bigger issues at 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 risk right now, and these require significant investment. They require nuanced solutions that look at the entire scope of the problem um and they're not your father's or your grandfather's or your grandmother's no. sort of solution and that's i'm excited by that because um technology combined with sort of social awareness and um and demographic shifts i think there's there's a, a significant possibility of really moving the needle on how we manage our forests which is why I took the gig. So forward thinking, I mean, what, what is your, you think about challenges and headwinds and things that, that come at you? I mean, what, if you were projecting out 10, 15 years, you know, I mean, like I said, you've, you're dedicating, you're dedicating essentially, you know, your career to this. I mean, wh wh where does the focus go? Where do things, where do things go from here? Right. Did, is it a battle or is it, are, are we battling? Are we winning? Are we losing? Like where, where do you see the future going in this space? I think the short term battle is really not sort of, you know, preservationist on one side and extractionist on the other. I think the battle is really for the hearts and minds of the sort of, you know, silent majority in the middle. Um, so is it emotion versus the science? Because to me, you bring the science to it. It's both. But you've got the emotion of people that are not educated. Some are educated, some aren't, but don't truly understand the value in what y'all are trying to do. I think if you ask the average person whether or not trees had anything to do with sort of addressing climate change, I think the average person would acknowledge there's some connection. They don't necessarily know how or or what 
what the investment yeah. is or what the risk risk or sacrifice is, but that's significant. I mean, in the case of climate change, you're talking about, you know, the percentage point shift in the last few years is m- not just moving like five or six percentage points. We're talking like 10, 15, 20% per year. Like this is, there is so much evidence that this is a reality. And then the question is, okay, how do we address it? And right now, for especially for sequestering carbon, the only scalable technology we know is actually the traditional natural technology, which are trees. So figuring out how do we scale that and also manage it in such a way that it doesn't become like a net exporter of carbon in the case of catastrophic wildfire. Yeah. It's, 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 it's not black or white. It's, it is really sort of a nuanced understanding, but you know, life's complicated. Anyone who's lived life knows that. And I think it's just sort of punching into the general consciousness of acknowledging that reality um, and understanding the, the benefits and then the relative costs. So the costs seem significant if you don't understand the benefits, but if you understand yeah. the benefits, then it makes, it makes sense because the return on investment is so significant. I see in, in, at least in your line of work, your work is never done. I mean, I'm, I, I, my day job is in oil and gas in the state of California, which we have a governor now that doesn't want oil and gas in the state of California would rather rely on you know, 90% import versus what we export. So, so I, I get it. I, I get the opposition. I get where you guys are coming from, but what, it feels like sometimes when it's an attack on your own livelihood or an attack on your beliefs and what you feel, you, you, you take it personally, right? You take it differently than when it's maybe an attack on someone else where you don't, you don't feel that connection. And, and again, I, and I don't, I don't live in the world that you live in, but I feel some of that because I'm very much like you. I love the outdoors. I enjoy the outdoors. Not everything I connect to is always hunting. I love to hike. I love to fish. I love to I love to do things just being where I have the ability to do that. And to think in a day in 10 years where I, I, I wouldn't have the ability to do that, I don't know what else I would do. I'm, I, I golfed. I'm not a golfer anymore. You know, I just... I don't know what I would do if I didn't have that resource at my fingers. And so I, I think it's noble in what you're doing because it's, it, 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 again, it's something that you got to dedicate your life to and something that you feel strong enough that, that you feel like you can make an impact. There's no easy fixes. Um, thank you for that. I think that, um, our relationship to natural resources I think the greatest crime has been stripping larger society of its awareness of it, the benefits and the costs of that relationship. And I think what we're crossing into now is a, a greater understanding of that connection. And the question is, where do you invest your time and where do you cut costs? Um, or get the most value out of the time that you invest, right? I mean, you could have 20 things on your desk and you prioritize everything, but where are you going to get the most value out of where you put your time? I think well, I think we all not only struggle with it, but also understand that, that you have to take the highest priority and address that because if you don't, all the other stuff doesn't matter at that point, right? 
This is why keystone species drive a lot of conservation work, right? Is is a trickle down effect, and I think for forests, it would be great for me if I just you know came on here and I was just like, hey, I'm for forests, you know, invest in forests, yay, yay, forests. But it's forests. It I, I am for a complex engagement, like which is doesn't quite like I said doesn't make the greatest bumper sticker. Sure, but I think. If if twenty years from now, we are living our lives in which we are thinking about where we live, what we eat, how we live, and and how it impacts forests, and we're making investments and taking risks, um, and in some cases accepting costs, taking that into mind. I think that's. That's what we have to do because the solutions involving a healthier um, forest future involve investment. That's just the reality. And um, the only way you get investment is when people value the asset. And so that's, that's, that's the challenge. I think there's a tremendous foothold that's already exists, some momentum associated with things that are larger than just forest, but involve forest. Um, but I think we just gotta gotta close the gap. Yeah, and we gotta move the needle um, because I think time matters here. Time is of the essence. I think in a lot of things, time is well, time is money, and you can never get that back. So I think putting your your time and your energy into things that are most valuable um, are what move the needle. And we were talking about kind of how do you move the needle earlier, and that I think that goes for all aspects of industry and business, right? You can twiddle your thumbs and and spend your time on non-value added things, and and you're never gonna you're never gonna get to that next level. So, wildfire brings this readily apparent. I mean, there's lots of climate change things we're seeing across the landscape, but I think wildfire in particular, um, you know, when a fire is bearing down in someone's house, and you say, you know, yeah. next year we're gonna allocate funding and next year's budget, and we'll get to it. <laughs> it doesn't really no, sense. It's, it, 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 it's it, acute. It's happening now. People relate yeah. to it. That's my cousin. That's my grandpa. I mean, that that's where it becomes real fast. Yeah, and let me be clear: wildfire will exist in a healthy forest across the landscape, but not all wildfire is equal, and. Um, whether it's fully natural is really sort of a choice we have in terms of if we're going to have people in that landscape. Yeah. So there's, but we don't, I mean, in most cases throughout the West, we do not have a natural landscape. It's, it does not have the age class. It mm-hmm. does not have the, the fuel loads of a natural landscape. And, um, in a world in which we're trying to, reduce the amount of carbon going into the atmosphere it's hard to sort of just take a let it burn burn approach let alone the human impact impacts mm-hmm. associated with it and you know let's keep in mind those human impacts are not just where things burn it's also the smoke which travels long distances and in some cases the services that are around it in california you guys have been dealing with with blackouts which power outages you know occur, shutting the power down and occur a, a long ways away oftentimes from the actual fire yeah. risk. So there's, there's all types of, I mean, all these things are connected, but these things are becoming more and more evident in terms of how we manage our natural resources and for forests. 
sustainable forestry management is at the center of a, a healthier and happier tomorrow. So we're here. I mean, we're going to go win a sheep hunt tomorrow. I mean, that, that's part Perfect. of the plan. Perfect. So, let's, let, let's make that happen. And, well, yeah. Someone's going to win a sheep hunt that we know. <laughs> I, I hope it's someone. If it's not me, I hope it's someone I know because I, I would love to go with them. But, um, yeah, I mean, just just think about that. I mean, the things that we love to do. You love to chase elk. You you you're a you're a you you're a blacktail snob. You love hunting blacktails, and all of that stuff doesn't happen if we don't have a place to go do it, right? So the, to me, there's a there's a there's a lever there where there's kind of a personal protective piece to that too, right? And and, and again, I and I, I totally give you 110 percent credit of kind of your mission and vision and what you're doing but i don't i don't know that people's always relate to how that goes away then you can't do that right or if that resource goes away you're talking about how how you take a tree and you build a tree and besides extracting it you plant and you build more well north american bison years ago there was in the single digits levels of north american bison in the united states because Native Americans never managed them, right? They were, they were a fuel source. They were, they were a food source. They were a heat source. You know, North American elk were the same way years ago. They were in single digits, right? And look what conservation efforts have done for these animals. They allow us to be able to go and enjoy these animals, um, whether it's taking a picture of them or whether it's, you know, trying to, to stalk them and, and put an arrow in them or in your case, um, you know, 140 grain burger bullet, but, um, so conservation works, I guess is my point. And whatever aspect of whether it's conserving the landscape, conserving animals, um, conservation is at the root of a lot of that. You asked me what the greatest risk was. And I think I said this, or maybe I just thought it, I think apathy is the greatest risk and for the future of healthy and sustainable forests. Um, so, um, whether that motivation is by conservation or by sort of ecological gain, I think where we are today is much more a place of apathy for the majority of folks rather than yeah. sort of being on one team or the other. And um, I think that forests demand more investment and engagement from our society than we've currently given it. So with well, that... I digress because we were starting to talk about sheep hunting and then we went back into this whole serious mode but oh sorry about that we're yeah we're we've only been we've only been cutting it for over an hour surprisingly but I'm i could getting, talk for another two hours I'm, but i'm just getting warmed up then we're going to be zombies tomorrow and we're going to go over there and that's right it's a conference Everyone's put your hand up Oh, he's betting. He just won the hunt. You just won. All I need to know is your bitter number. I'll be good. You just won a desert sheep hunt in Tiburon Island in Mexico. <laughs> Honey, um, you know, the savings we had for <laughs> this and our child, yeah, that, not, that, not, just, that not, just went out the door. Now you're projecting. But, no, it's all good. It's great to connect. Good to see you, man. Good to talk to you, too, man. Yeah. Even though we were super serious, there's actually a fun, loving, you know, outdoor side to both of us. So. I don't know how you do a tie-in to forests. I mean, to, to sheep when most sheep are above timberline. And I just spent almost my time talking about forests. Almost Which, until you asked 
Justin Schaefer about his doll sheep honey shot last year in 2019. The low timber line. That's true. That's so, true. And let's. I don't know if he tell, told you that story, but. Let's acknowledge He went up above to go above Timberline to find the dull sheep. Come to find out, they ended up being less than probably a thousand feet where he probably thought they would be much lower. Right. Well, so, you know, sheep are where you, not necessarily where you'd like to find them. They're, yeah. They're where they are. And I wouldn't know, but <laughs> I want to find out. So I've been told. Yeah. I, heard, I read a rumor. Or I heard a rumor one time. I read a book. That said, no, it's all good. Well, it is uh, it is two o'clock in the morning, and we got a long day ahead of us tomorrow. And you got you got parent watch when you get home, so it's true. Got to make sure you get a good night's sleep. Three year old waits for no man. <laughs> <laughs> I still think of that picture with you and him. That was pretty. That was a pretty sweet picture. The buck was one thing, but the picture was like. I'm not even sure I looked at the buck after you sent me that picture. With the blacktail? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you look at um, a three-year-old, in the case of my son, and you look at the deer, you hope that moment sort of jars the child to sort of a curiosity about the sort of relationship and and health of nature in the future. But that child's not really going to be able to engage in that conversation meaningfully for probably 10 years. And so the question is, what does it look like in 10 years? So it's very much related to my work around forestry. I think it's, it's why a lot of us show up, um, to, to invest in these organizations and do this work. Um, because I guess you could say selfishly, we care about the health of these resources so that others may enjoy them long after we're gone. I'm not saying it's intrinsic, intrinsically good, but that's, I guess that's what makes me happy. Yeah. So last question, you never answered it. What's that? Are you a bow hunter or are you a rifle hunter? I've spent if if the you majority, had one method to take bow, the rest of your life bow. and what species elk I knew you and I had something in common <laughs> so many jokes. And it wasn't just the so gray many, in our beard so. so many jokes a little time oh my god okay for the record bow elk yep okay if I had to make the choice got into my head is there anything like a bull bugling in September? Just, I'm not sure there's anything else like that. I would like to think that I had a nuanced and complex relationship with nature that I didn't need a thousand pound animal screaming in my face to get my blood flowing and get me engaged. But I haven't found anything else that gets me there. It's hard to explain that to people, isn't it? That it's, don't get it or it just grabs like a spouse you. or something. It just grabs you. Why and do says, you want to go live like a homeless person when you like have all this stuff? And I'm like, you don't get it. But that's okay because they don't have to get it. They just need to understand what's important to you and why you need that element in your life. That's what they need to understand. 
you know, I mean, take this back to Forrest. The, the future isn't necessarily saying that everyone has to go to Forrest or that everyone has to self-identify as Forrest. They just have to understand its value and be willing to invest in it. And there's plenty of things that we invest in that we never get to see, but we understand their value. So, but for us, my elk in the woods, it's pretty easy to understand. Yeah. Which is a gift. Yeah. All right, Gen Xer. Are you Gen X or what are you? I am Gen X. Okay. It's true. The, yeah. the, I'd, the, I'd, I'd ask you to throw out your social media stuff, but you're Gen X. They don't do that stuff. So. <laughs> no, man. I, I, I don't really do. We're kind of, we're tr- kind of apathetic. We're, we're disruptive, but apathetic. And we you, don't, we don't like authority. You're more like a stalker level, like social stalker. Right. It's kind of right. Yeah. The system, the predator. Syst- Are you a predator status or this, this in my, uh, well, I'm married. I mean that we're, we're, are you talking about your handle? The social media predator status. No. <laughs> your handle. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. This is Sorry, what happens I, at 2 a.m. I just completely threw you off there, but it's all right. Because you're always like, yeah, I saw this on, I saw you do that on social. I'm like, you even have social media? How'd you know I did that? I, I try to keep up with the kids. Okay. Yeah. Try to try to stay relevant. Hey, man, there's That's more good. There's more baby boomers. I'm sorry. There's more millennials over the age of 18 than we have baby boomers. That's so. a scary thought. Yeah, man. Because our baby boomers are somewhat founded. I mean, a lot of the technology and things that we have today, foundational concepts, baby boomers. I, I see them at my, my work when they're retiring. I'm seeing 30 to 40 years of experience walk out the door that you can't take that and plant it in anybody. And the work ethic in that is not the work ethic that's coming in. And it's in like anything industry and things will change and industry changes, but you institutionally you can't take that knowledge and and you can't you can't plant that anywhere and it's and it's walking out every company's doors as we speak and a lot of it like i said is what founded a lot of companies organizations that we you know all have a close connection to today so but also gives light to people to come in carry the torch and change and take it in a different direction. So I think the, the, the art is that we could have more folks who are willing to disrupt the paradigms around how we manage natural resources, how we manage our businesses, how society works. I think what we need more of is a greater sense of humanity and sort of social connection and investment. That's, I think, one thing that's lacking, what's coming up. Um, I think that we can, we can get there, but we really have to be intentional about it. With that, let's go win a sheep hunt tomorrow. All right. We'll use your credit card. That's fine. I mean, it has no limit. So for you, sky's the limit, buddy. I'm in. Sign me up. All right, we're signing off. Reno, Nevada, 2020 Sheep Show. Joe Furia. Lucas Paul.
Hey everyone, this is Lucas Paw, host of the RNA Outdoors podcast. Please check out Podbean and iTunes. If you have an iPhone or iPad, go to the podcast app on your device, search for RNA Outdoors, and hit the purple subscribe button. When doing this, it will automatically upload when new podcasts are loaded and they will download into your queue. For Android users, you can access the podcast through Podbean, Stitcher, or use our website, www.rnaoutdoors.com forward slash podcast. In addition, under the RNA Outdoors podcast channel, please leave a review and a five-star rating. These reviews help boost our popularity and outreach. You can also follow us on our social media outlets, Twitter at RNA Outdoors, Facebook, RNA Outdoors, and Instagram, Rod and Arrow Outdoors. All links are in the show notes as well. If you like what you've heard, we hope you'll pass along our channel to your friends and colleagues. Keep up the good fight. We cannot sit by and watch the public lands devoted to wildlife protection wither away. There's simply too much at stake. Make your voice heard, speak up, and get involved with conservation efforts. And know that every little bit helps. As we say on the mountain, go farther, stay longer.